you can't see the forest for the trees is a popular phrase uh, that people say when you can't see the bigger picture. All you can see is the individual trees and you're not seeing the bigger picture. You're not seeing reality. Let me see if this phrase holds to be true. I'm going to give you some pictures up here uh, that you might be too close to understand what they are. So our first picture here, um, I want to give you the moment to, to have the courage to consider what you're seeing, some um, yellowish-orange radial discs of some sort. What are you seeing, anyone? Crackers, oyster, a buckeye, fungi, or a buckeye, yep. I'm not hearing it yet. Corn pops. corn pops. I would love that to be corn pops. All right, let's zoom out for this next picture. Here's what it is. It's a bell pepper. It's the seeds of a bell pepper. Someone got it? You win everything. Uh, all the money in the world. All right, this next picture. What do we think it is? I heard guitar strings. What? A fly? A fly is a guess. Uh-huh. Rain? Pain? I don't know what you said. All right, we're going to zoom out, and that is pages of a book. Some, yes, this is our new service. We'll do this every Sunday now. Y'all really like this. <laughs> I had actually had like 20 of these. I was like, that's not the point of the sermon. Cut it back. We'll just do three. This is our last one, because <laughs> I was as interested as you. All right, this last one. Brown uh, looks like mountain range. A stick. Maybe a stick is a guess. Dirt. Dirt. Good guess. Mulch. <laughs> Lincoln Riley's brisket. Okay. Uh, it's a very niche joke. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's zoom out. What is this? It's a cinnamon stick. So a stick could count. That's a, a stick of cinnamon. Sometimes we can't understand something because we're too close to it. Make sense? Sometimes we are just too close to it, and, and it's helpful to take a step back and to see the bigger picture, um, to step out of our own shoes, to step out of our own culture, and to get another view. And sometimes God sends people in our lives that say, you're too close. You're not seeing reality well. And today I want to ask you, will you listen to them? Will you listen to them? We're in uh, the book of Isaiah. If you're just now joining us, we're finishing a section where God uh, is trying to uh, tell his people to stop trusting in all these other nations uh, and stop putting all of your hope in them. Uh, and it reveals how trusting in them is like trusting in the strength of a wet napkin. You know, like, nothing's going to happen. Don't put your hope and faith in them. But to Isaiah, he's, he's a prophet, and prophets have to speak hard truths like that, but in their day, they're the ones that sound insane. In their day, they're saying in chapter 21, which we skipped over, it's a prophecy against military superpowers and how dumb it would be to ally yourself with them. It's like trusting a wet napkin. Everyone's going, no, they have all the power in the world. And then in chapter 23, he's saying how dumb it might be to put all your hopes in money and these really wealthy, rich nations and how fickle that money can actually be. 
And so these are, this, is, this is kind of ending the series of stop trusting in all of these other nations. But right here in chapter 22, we realize God's not just throwing out prophecies against other nations. He's also talking to God's people. And that's kind of what I want us to focus on. Not just other people. I want to talk about the church. I want to talk about God's people and, and, and what God is trying to say here to us. And so in verse 1, he says, a, a prophecy against the valley of vision. Now, why the valley of vision? If you do need uh, perspective, sometimes it's helpful to take a step back to get an idea to, of what, you, what it is, and so you can have a, a better understanding of it. Another way to get vision of something is to go up high and to get a, a bird's eye view, maybe on top of a mountain to, to see down where you need to go. And the city of Jerusalem was actually a city on the hill. It had that high bird's eye view. It had the way to see from afar, and yet Isaiah is calling them the valley of vision. Why? Because they, they, they claim to know what God's doing. They claim to know and to be able to see, but they're just as blind as if they're seen from the valley. They're claiming God on their side, and yet they don't know where they're going. This prophet is calling them out because their behavior doesn't seem to match what they are saying. They have presumed on God's grace. And that's the title of the sermon of presuming on God's grace. And what do I mean when we say presuming on God's grace? Um, verse 1 begins this way uh, on the verse here on the screen. Got that? A prophecy against the valley of vision. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs? That's how the, the NIV re, uh, reads it. I actually don't think that's a great translation of, of this passage. Uh, not just me and thinking up in my own head. Many commentators as well uh, would say this is maybe a troublesome translation. I think the interpreter is trying to smooth things over to make it make sense. But instead, it could be read, you know, what to you? Like, what business do you have or what do you mean by instead of um, bringing, you know, lamenting over going to the roofs. He's like, why are you going to the roofs? Because the roofs are not just a place of communal lament. The roofs were a place of communal celebration and festivities. And we understand that's what's actually happening. Judah is partying on the rooftops because in verse 2, he says, you have a town so full of commotion, your city of tumult and revelry. So everyone's going and having a party on the roofs. And now Isaiah is bringing a prophecy against them, and you're like, hmm, Isaiah doesn't like partying. He's not a, not a fun guy to be around. Let me give you some backstory. Second uh, Kings 18 tells a story of when the king, Judah, uh, when the king of Judah, a guy named Hezekiah, um, out of fear, he strikes a bargain with the king of Assyria, a guy named Sennacherib, and, and he says, out of fear of this big bully, he gives him 30, 30 uh, talents of, of gold, and he gives all of Judah's silver, all of their silver. And then, if that wasn't enough, Hezekiah does this. I think this verse is up here. Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. So out of fear, the king of Judah says, we'll give you all of our money. And if that's not enough, let me take... Let me pry off the gold, off the doors of the temple of God, where, where human beings met with God, and let me give you that. And then Assyria went on their way. They were assuaged of their, their anger towards Judah. And the whole city is now partying on the rooftops. Everyone's having a party, and Isaiah is just weeping bitterly. 
This is not something to celebrate. Do you understand what you've just done? He's weeping bitterly because they are now mocking God's warning. The people of Jerusalem have presumed on God's grace while treating the temporary truce like this decisive victory. They've overlooked the fact that the rulers and warriors had exposed them to slaughter and now fleeing in fear, they're going to fall into the hands of another enemy. And so they're presuming on God's grace saying, we have a God who will forgive us. Take the gold from the temple. Presumption. You ever, you, ever, you ever struggle with that? God will forgive me. When, you're, when temptation is upon you, God will forgive me. We do this all the time. We think of it as no big deal. We're acting as if we know something will happen. Almost like it's normal, that grace is normal, and that grace is due. And the problem is, when we start treating a gift like a wage, it ruins the gift. Does that make sense? The minute we treat a gift like a wage, it loses its power. If one of my sons came up to me and said, hey, dad, it's my birthday, give me my hundred dollars. I'd say, <laughs> try again, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, nope, that's not how this works. You now have ruined the gift. You might be lucky to get a stick of gum, right? That's how you want to feel and re respond to that because presumption is arrogance. It's disrespectful. It kills grace. But when a gift is not presumed, then now I'm thinking of all the creative ways to, to show my kids how much I love them and go over the top, right? You see, presumption of grace is the first domino to fall to some really sad stuff that happens in this passage. The people of Israel has presumed on the Lord's grace in saving them from Assyria, but the other nations are going to come and arm themselves, and so what will God's people do then? That's when we come to the management of sin. Sin management is just what we do. I think this is the air we breathe as Christians, or as people claiming to be Christians. We presume on God's grace, God will forgive me, it's fine, and yet, even though we believe that, that God will forgive me, we don't actually feel it because we know we've just been presumptuous with God's grace. And so we've, we've committed the sin, this heinous act, whatever it may be, and now we are dealing with it internally, saying something about that doesn't sit right. And so then what do we do in those moments when we're not, when we're, when we have to feel the heinousness of the sin and yet we've not actually tasted grace? What do we do? We have these sin management techniques. Uh, let me give you a few sin management techniques. I want you to look at these and ask yourself which of these tends to describe you. We all have this and we all probably choose a few of these. Defending is when you find it difficult to receive feedback about a weakness or a sin. It's when you try to explain everything away. Pretending, when you strive to keep up appearances. This one's all about image management. We pretend we're okay, even though we're not. This next one is similar to that. It's hiding when you try to conceal as much as you can about your life, especially the bad stuff, and the difference between this and pretending is hiding is not trying to put a front of who you are, 
Hiding is more about shame and concealing who you are. Blaming is, a, I, I, is quick to shift the focus because, you know, I have a difficult time, uh, you know, owning my contributions to sin or conflict. Exaggerating tends to think and talk more highly of myself than I ought to, making things good and bad out to be much. but we'll just go with this. Here we go. Cool. I don't want this one anyways. <laughs> I prefer to have my hands constrained. <laughs> Where are we at? Exaggerating. I uh, tend to think and talk more highly of myself than I ought to and make things good and bad uh, to be much bigger than they actually are. And it's usually to get attention, right? This last one, minimizing is the tendency to downplay sin and circumstances in my life as if they're normal. This is when we normalize everything that shouldn't be normalized. And as a result, things have a way of mounting up to the point of becoming overwhelming. As you look at these, these six sin management techniques, which one sticks out to you? Which one do you, is your go-to? We all do it. I think that last one is the one that Judah struggles with, of minimizing. In verse 8, it says, The Lord stripped away the defenses of Judah, and you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. And so they didn't just minimize their sin. They are also minimizing the God that they say they love. And so when the shrapnel of sin goes off and it's exploded, instead of coming back to the Lord and just begging for forgiveness... They then attend to build up their walls and make sure that their water supply is good. And, and they're starting to trust in anything and everything but God himself. Chapter 22 is all about how Isaiah is saying, weep over your sin. And all Israel and Judah wants to do is to fortify their walls and protect themselves and not dealing with the root issue of what is actually going on. They are, they are in, in a sin management seminar on how to deal with it, right? And so then Isaiah then goes from the nation as a general, a general as for the first part, they're now talking about particular actors in the second half of this chapter who just exemplify that sin management. And that's when we, we were met uh, Shebna, the, who's like the steward or the prime minister of Judah. And instead of, as the country is being attacked from, from outside forces, instead of attending to that as the prime minister should... Instead of laying his own life down, at trying to figure out ways to care for his own people, we actually find his sin management technique is hiding as well, as he is literally trying to hide from all of this, and he is building his own tomb in the rock. And one of the greatest fears of someone whose sin management technique is hiding is that fear of being found out. And Isaiah finds him. His greatest fear comes alive. In verse 16, Isaiah says, What are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? I mean, this is just one of those stories where the main character just keeps making the wrong choice over and over and over. It's a tragedy. And this is, this is, this is the domino effect of presuming on God's grace and resorting to sin management to deal with our own conscience and then sadly, that leads us to this last, or to this third point, which is the death of hope. 
Let's go back to verse 12. Verse 12 says this, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and to put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat, drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for you say, for tomorrow we die. Have you ever met someone who even in their partying, even in all their laughter, even in all their drinking and eating and, 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 and joy, you can actually see the sadness coming out. You can see it's a facade. You can see it in their eyes because the eyes usually don't lie. You can see the sadness, sometimes literally with tears coming out of their eyes while they're, they're, they're partying. I think that's what's happening right here with Judah. Eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Let's have, let's have a time of our lives, even though I'm strangely sad. That's what's happening right here. You could see the sadness in here, in the midst of this. Not having a free hand is difficult. This is why I shouldn't have notes. Okay, here we go. <laughs> that fun had a, had a sense of death mixed in it. And you could just see that in people and things like that. And so here's the very basic application to this, this whole chapter. If you want a one line for this, when God calls you to mourn for sin, don't party instead. When God calls you to mourn for sin, don't party instead. Um, but you, if, if you have presumed on God's grace, if you've only ever known sin management techniques, that means you've never actually truly known and, and, and met radical grace, then this makes sense. And why verse 14 comes, and verse 14 is tragic. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing, till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. That is a hard word that I just want us to see up on the screens. That your sin will not be atoned for. Do you feel like Isaiah is blowing this sin out of proportion? Is he, is he mad about the partying? Is he mad about stripping the temple of the gold? Like, what is it that makes God so angry that he said, this I will not forgive? This makes me think of a passage in the New Testament when Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 31, and he says this, And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Let me read that one again. That's a tough one as well. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. I have a personal history with this verse. When I first became a, a, a Christian, I think I was 13, it was in January, that summer I went to a summer camp. And at the camp with this church camp, uh, this, this verse came up out of context on the, the Monday of the camp, the very first day, and all I could do is wrestle. What does this mean? 
What does this mean that God would not forgive some sins? And the reason it concerned me is because right before I became a Christian, I was angry with God. I was so angry because I felt like God stole my best friend away from me. I felt like he took my, my world away. He, he moved me to a new place, and I just felt so alone. And so in that anger, I hated God. I mean, I hated God, and I cussed God out. And I cussed the people he loved out, and I was mean and, and hurtful to the people God loved. And so when I read this passage that says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, God himself, there is no forgiveness of sins. It, it, it was struggling. So then I, I said, okay, I'm going to go to the, I'm gonna go the camp pastor. So I went to the camp pastor and I said, hey, I, I, this doesn't sound like the character of God. Can you make this make sense? Can, can this really be true that someone cannot be forgiven? And, and I'm, I'm in tears crying. And he said, yeah, that's what the passage says. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I was like, is there nothing a person can do? And he said, if you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the whole camp, it's a week-long camp, for, for three days, I just felt like I was breathing through a straw. I'm just in torment that I am going to hell. And there's nothing I can do about it. And so just the three days of that torment. And so I finally came back to the pastor and I was like, please, please, there's nothing you can do for me? Is, is nothing to be done? I don't want to go to hell. And the pastor said, tell me what you did. And I told him what I did. They, you know, I was angry with God. I cussed him out. And, and he said, oh, I'm sorry. That's not what this verse is about. It's calling who Jesus is and the work that he does as the work of the devil is blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, what? What are your credentials to be the camp pastor? <laughs> I didn't think that at the time. Now I look back. But two, like, I was just like, I'm free? <sighs> like, I just felt like the, the breathing through the straw, I was able to go... <gasps> and breathe actual air like if you had a backpack full of like rocks or something that's just weighing you down it will drop it on the ground and you just go oh that's what it is that's what true grace is I felt like I, before I was presuming on God's grace going yeah he'll forgive me that's what Christians talk about but now I felt like it was truly a gift and I could actually be forgiven and it was a gift I wasn't owed to me and I thought that was just a beautiful thing yes I don't agree with the, the way it worked but God used it but I just tasted true forgiveness in this way Oh, I hope you get a sense of that, that free grace one day, of how free and it, it should be, and, and it is. But I still had the question later, then what is this weird, you cannot be forgiven passage about? God's kingdom, and what it is, is that God's kingdom is all about reconciliation and healing. And if you want to be a part of that kingdom, then you should also be about reconciliation and healing. That makes sense, right? Like, if, you, if that's what God does, he's all about reconciliation and healing, then you should also want to be about those things. And I think all of us have this gateway which can open us up to receive love and forgiveness. And it's that same gateway that receives it 
is the one that also gives love and forgiveness. So if there are some people out there that you say, I cannot love and I cannot forgive, it closes you off. It closes that gateway off to be able to receive that as well. And if you close those gates, you are closing it is what it's saying. And blaspheming the Holy Spirit, things like forgiveness, things like loving your enemy, things like caring for the oppressed, if you hate those things in such a way that say those things are demonic, that's what they were doing in Jesus' day as Jesus is healing people physically and casting out demons. They were saying Jesus is casting out demons by the power of a demon. And if you're like me, you're like, I never struggled with that. I never struggled with assuming Jesus was casting out demons by the power of a demon. That's just a freeing thing. But what, let's bring it to our, our day here. Is that, is that a struggle? I, I don't think in that way it is. But in this way, it might be. The people who are accusing Jesus are saying his works are of the devil. That the kingdom of heaven is toxic. Repent and believe what do I have to repent of? Don't make me deal with sins in this way. Don't make me actually amend a relationship, someone I've hurt. Asking someone to repent can feel oppressive, and so I'm going to slam the door on that. And if I slam the door on that, then I'm slamming the door on feeling the freedom that God can give to me. Slamming the door on love and forgiveness. And, and this is what this is. Because Jesus is all about forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. If you say, I want no part of that, then that's what you get. And when we presume on God's grace that we haven't tasted the real forgiveness, and then we move into sin management techniques, and when we're tasked with offering that same forgiveness that was offered to us, we just can't because we haven't tasted it. We don't know the deep magic of what that is actually like. And for the people in Isaiah's day, they have lost hope. And when you've lost hope, you've lost hope for that people can change, then you now give up hope that anything can change, and you give up hope that you can change, right? This is all interconnected. And so then you just settle for eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And you just try to scrape up any form of joy that you might be able to have here on this earth when hope is dead. But I can't leave you there. Because <laughs> that's not what the, the, the story of the Bible is. The last point is the truth of repentance. And so let's go back to verse 12. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair, I'm good, and put on sackcloth. <laughs> that is the picture of repentance right there. That it's true repentance. That when we've sinned, we recognize it. We've seen the ugliness of it, the heinousness of it. We realize that it, a simple, hey, I'm sorry, doesn't suffice. It's true wailing and weeping that I've offended people, that I've hurt someone around me, that I've offended God. And sin management just tries to keep you comfortable. It doesn't want you to go there. It doesn't want you to be able to get to the, to the weightiness and the substance of that right there. But true repentance makes you sit in that and say, I have hurt you, and I can't believe I've hurt you, and I'm coming back to you on hands and knees begging for forgiveness. Because, and I'm telling you this because I struggle with this. There are many times that I just want to say, hey, I'm sorry. And sometimes that suffices based on the nature of the sins and the frequency and things like that. But many times, just saying, hey, I'm sorry, doesn't cut it. If I've deeply hurt you, then just saying, hey, I'm sorry, doesn't actually deal with the real issues there. 
I need to be able to say, no, I've neglected you. I've hurt, I've, 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 I've broken our friendship and our trust, and, and I can't believe that I did something like that. And so I'm begging you for forgiveness, not presuming that you'll give it, but begging that I'll, and I'll do anything to make it right. That, to me, is the picture of true repentance. Thomas Watson says it this way, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner, sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. I like those images of inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. For a further amplification, know that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six ingredients. You ready for the six ingredients? These are the six ingredients of true repentance. Sight of sin. That one may be the hardest one. Do you actually see that sin is sin? That, that, that part of you. We all have blind spots. And we go, no, that's not, that's not me. And someone reveals it to you and you go, oh, no. I have been doing that. So sight of sin. And then once you see it, to actually have sorrow of the sin. To actually mourn that I did that. And then that pushes you to confess your sin, to say, Lord, I, I can't believe I sinned against you and I've sinned against this person. Please, please forgive me. And in that, in that asking forgiveness, it, it pushes you to have shame over that sin. Like, I, don't, I can't believe that's an ugly thing that happened. I never want to do that again. And so it makes you then have a hatred for the sin, not for yourself, but for the sin, to push it away. And that pushes you then to the last point of turning from your sin. And, and Thomas Watson says, if anyone is left out of these points, it loses its virtue. If we, if we try to skip over repentance so fast... I don't know if we've truly repented in this way. But the beauty is, the truth of repentance is, is that no one is too far gone from the Lord. That no one is too far gone from the Lord. If you would only repent and truly repent, what Peter tells us in Acts 2 is this, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Right? This is for everyone. Every one of you. It's, it's very normalizing in that sense. It makes it for everyone. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's where true joy can be found through real repentance, not fake repentance. And the good news is, is that there is no sin that you can commit which casts you out eternally from heaven. The only sin that is, is the failure to repent of your sins, the failure to repent and believe, because Jesus came for sinners, of who we are the foremost, as Paul says, that we need to understand that, that we are the sinners, that we have giant logs in our eyes, right? And God in his grace, and this is the beautiful thing, he never asks you to apply these truths alone. Yes, as we hear this, we're hearing this, and we're thinking of our own lives, we're, we're individualizing it, but I don't want you to walk away on this, this road alone, this call hits all of us individually, but I want us to repent in community. And so let me ask you, has this past week, has someone called you out for something? Has someone, has someone shown you a mirror of yourself and said, this was, this was not okay? I want you to throw the sin management techniques out. Wrestle with what they've said, even if only 10% of it you think is accurate. Wrestle with what they've said. And repent to them. God gives us people in our communities to show us our blind spots. Thank you. Thank you that I don't have to continue going on the road and being that person. And then if you don't have somebody who knows you well enough to be able to speak into your life, that's step one. Step one is, is, is saying, let's quit having the surface level conversations. 
Let's invite someone to speak into our lives and ask a friend, you know, what's it like being my friend? What's it like being a friend to me? How have I hurt you? Please be honest. I want to hear. Help me zoom out and show me the real me. Step two is if, if you're the person who's trying to help someone and show the mirror to them, ask yourself before you enter into that conversation is, is have I gone into this conversation with humility? Confessing my sins first. I'm sorry that I've been a bad friend to you. I'm sorry that I've gossiped about you. I'm sorry that I've held terrible lies upon you. Would you forgive me? Before we ever confess or or point someone else's sin out to them. Right, so let's, let's confess our own sins before we point someone else's out. And then go to the Lord, not presuming upon grace, but letting a full repentance take place, asking daily for forgiveness and being shocked at God's kindness and goodness in the midst of it. And then... I think we truly taste life eternal. Then we can actually breathe (gasps) that free air of grace and mercy and kindness and love of our Father. Let me pray for us.